Hello, Northbrook. If you'd like to locate Galatians 6, Galatians chapter 6 in your Bibles, I'm going to be reading aloud verses 1 to 5, and I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read. So Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. There's a word, church. Just let that kind of sink in. You know, it's interesting how we use that word. It can refer to a building or buildings or to a local organization that sees itself both as unique yet also connected to others. For some, the word is, or the concept is kind of a mystery. They don't know much about it because they're personally unexperienced with the church, but they have a view or a belief that it's a dangerous thing and it's filled with spooky people and crazy practices. And then there's also the Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church, similar in name, but in reality vastly different in meaning. But, for, but sadly for many, the term refers to something like a dream, uh, an ideal they once believed in and pursued, but now they've abandoned. And along with those who have given up on the church are the many who have not yet or never will abandon the church, but their involvement is a ritualistic and duty-driven. In the heart of many, church is a dangerous place. It's filled with painful memories. And, and it's filled with the results of what Paul refers to as biting and devouring one another, consuming one another, conceited behaviors that provoke and cause people to envy one another. Those, those words that I just read from chapter 5 of Galatians really would sum up a lot of people's experience with what we call church. And I could share with you so many of my own painful memories defined by these terms, painful memories that came both while I wasn't a pastor and now that I have been a pastor. And the fact is, sadly, there are far too many times I have created these kinds of memories in other people. Plain and simple, far too often church is not a safe place. In fact, the church is, is mostly for many people a place of dysfunction. And the question is, why is that true? Why is 
church such a, a negative word to so many people? Why do so many people speak of and think of a place that they say they will never again darken the threshold of that building? Well, based on what Paul writes here in Galatians 5, I think it's the result of our living out what is natural to us as human beings. And it seems that Paul in chapter 5 has identified for us two ways our behavior based on our nature displays a fatal flaw in us. He spends a large amount of time in this letter, and actually in chapter 5, going after the legalism of Judaizers and those who follow their teaching. Now, I know legalism is somewhat of a controversial term, um, especially to legalists. I know that when I used to uh, operate within a framework of, of legalism myself, that I hated it when people threw out the term legalism. But I want to define the term so that we, we know what we're talking about. Legalism in its truest sense is the belief that my boundaries will make me godly. The rules that I keep actually define me as godly. Or it can be, along with that, an idea that I am more spiritually mature because of my boundaries, the rules that I keep. Or that God accepts me or loves me more because of my boundaries. <clears throat> I want to say here that legalism is, is not, when I say that, use that term, I'm not referring to a, a teaching that communicates biblical behavioral boundaries. You know, Paul teaches in Ephesians, he has a whole section in chapter 4 on uh, how we should behave, that we shouldn't lie, we shouldn't steal, we should put away anger and wrath and malice, that we should be kind to one another. He, he has these uh, boundaries that he establishes. And he goes on in chapter 5 to say that we shouldn't be people who use what he calls corrupt communication. So, so the Bible gives us behavioral boundaries, but when we take behavioral boundaries that are, are Bible-based, they may actually be in the Bible, or, or they're boundaries that we've just made up uh, because we think that's what God wants. When we take those boundaries and believe that those because I keep these boundaries ungodly, or because I keep these boundaries, I must be spiritually mature, or because I have these boundaries, God must like me better than the other person. When we move in that direction with them, we're moving in the direction of legalism. And with that understanding of what legalism is, we also need to realize that legalism destroys the bond of the community. And it does so, and I think this is just such a key concept, it does so because I have to diminish others as a legalist in order to maintain my own perception of righteousness. No one can be more righteous than me. They might be as righteous as me, 
But the reality is I have to bring some diminishing to the other person of their righteousness and their spirituality in order to maintain how I perceive my own righteousness and particularly my standing with God in the pecking order, the corporate ladder of the church. A great example of this in the Bible is the story of the Pharisee and the publican found in Luke 18. And we're not going to go there this morning. I just want to reference it. I think it would be helpful, uh, even if you're very familiar with it, to go back and read it again. To me, it's just been a, uh, a, an ongoing source of remembering what a legalist looks like and, and how a legalist responds. But in that passage, we read about the Pharisee, the one who's seen as very righteous in his community, and he stands apart from others. And he, he stands there and just brags about his spiritual greatness to God. He expresses no sense of his own sin, no sense of his internal state, but simply points out to God his exemplary external behavior. Just checking the boxes down. I do these things. I just want to remind you, God, I do these things. And I'm not like other men. In an attempt to convince God of his level of righteousness, he goes even further, comparing his behavior to that of another. And interestingly, he does not compare himself to the holiness of God, because that would in itself require a level of humility and honesty. Instead, he compares himself to extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, and especially that low-life publican, that tax collector, who happens to be an unforgivable in their culture. He can't be forgiven no matter what. Even if he wanted to repent, he can't be forgiven because he can't pay restitution for all the people that he's cheated. So when the Pharisee looks for someone to compare himself against to God, he chooses the bottom of the spiritual barrel, so to speak. And he goes even further to diminish the value of the publican to everyone. A person who is a member of his covenant community, who's there to worship God, and he bites him, and he devours him, and he destroys him, before God and before the people in order to prove his own worthiness. Legalists always have to find someone who doesn't measure up to themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons you see in legalism circles so much fighting and so much criticism of other people, even in their own circles. In contrast to the legalists, Paul briefly in chapter 5 identifies their opposites. This other group of people in the church. The opposite of the legalists are those who use their freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. This second way of life in the church is often referred to as license, particularly by the legalists. But license is the belief that grace allows one to individually choose what he or she believes is right for them or wrong for them. In this case, 
where freedom gives license to, as Paul says in chapter 5, to indulge the flesh, there will be no valid confrontation of sin in one's own life or in the lives of others. Because a, a live and let live philosophy comes to prevail. Because valid confrontation admits a standard to which another is held. In this case, Christ-likeness produced by the power of the Holy Spirit. I have to have a live and let live philosophy. If I, if I point out a problem in your life, well, then, then there has to be a, a standard of, of some kind, a valid, a real confrontation. It has to, has to adhere to a standard to which I'm holding the other person, and in particular, Christ-likeness. But I, here's the problem, I can't rightly hold to any other standard if the standard is self-referencing. If it is up to me, because of grace, to individually choose what is right or wrong for me, how can I, without hypocrisy, criticize another person for choosing what they believe is right or wrong for them? In fact, the only time another, another person's behavior is challenged, and it will be in a, in a licensed situation, but the only time another person's behavior is challenged is when the living of the other person intrudes upon my living. Then I will challenge it because it's inconveniencing to me. But in the end, the fatal flaw for both of these two ways of living, on the one hand legalism and on the other hand license, the fatal flaw for both of these is self-reference. I am the standard for what God approves. Neither one, neither legalism nor license, is a way of grace. Neither of them is the way of the Spirit. Neither of them is the way of love. But that way of grace, that way of Spirit, the way of love, in fact, is the third way. It is the gift of God's power in us through the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit to transform us into people of love who live in radically different ways because we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And because it is the way of love, it's no longer about me. The way of love is not about me. The way of love is about others. And so the way of love, again, being people of love, pushes back against legalism and pushes back against license and says, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we will together pursue and live in radically different ways to be transformed into the image of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to chapter 6. It brings us to the focus of chapter 6. Paul has laid out his arguments of what's wrong with the Judaizers, what's wrong with the idea that I please God by keeping 
the old covenant law. He, he's cut out the legs on circumcision. He's cut out the legs on the, uh, on the role of the uh, Mosaic law in the believer's life. And now he's brought us in chapter 5 to understanding the work of the Holy Spirit in us to make us into people of love because the thing that constrains us as the children of God is the love of Christ. The thing that is our guide, our guardrails is one word, love, and serving our neighbor as ourselves in love. And now we come to chapter six and everything kind of shifts and Paul does what he often does where he moves from a primary emphasis of theology to a primary emphasis of practice. What it will look like if you believe this and you embrace this theology, what it will look like in the way you live and the kind of person you are. And he gives some very brief explanations of specific situations that illustrate how people of love interact with each other in the new covenant community of the church. And so what I'd like for us to do this morning in these five verses is look quickly at what Paul teaches us here. Paul's first illustration that he introduced in verse 1 of chapter 6 is that of a community brother or sister who is caught in any kind of transgression or, or sin. And, and what he's presenting to us is an answer to the question, how do one world word people, how do one word people, people of love, respond? How is internal change that's being brought by the Holy Spirit, how is that displayed in our internal, our external actions to this brother or sister who is caught in a transgression? It's really interesting what he says here. First, he tells us to view them as caught. Brothers and sisters, if any one of you is caught, uh, this probably doesn't mean in the sense of being caught red-handed, that phrase that we use. In other words, they were sinning, doing some sin, and you happened to come around the corner and, and you saw it. And you caught them red-handed stealing something, or you caught them red-handed lying about something, or whatever. But rather, when he when he uses this term, it appears that he's he's referencing the idea of being caught by the sin, being trapped by the sin. the The term that he uses there for caught involves an uh, an idea of an element of surprise that this person was was moving through life and all of a sudden was was caught in this trap of sin. And now here they are. And, and by the way, Paul doesn't um, single out any one big sin or any group of sins. He says they're caught in any transgression. You have to consider in this situation what the legalists would typically do or what the licensed person would typically do. The legalists would probably immediately denounce and condemn and, and how dare you 
this is terrible. I can't believe this. And publicly, we need, everybody needs to know what happened here. It's terrible. For, totally forgetting that the Bible says that love covers, covers a multitude of transgression. There has to be. There has to be public dealing with this and bringing them forward and all this stuff and, and diminishing of this person and extolling of his own virtue. Okay, I would never do that. And then an isolation of that sin. That's what a legalist would do. But on the other hand, the, the person who is licensed to sin, that's for you James Bond fans out there, the ones who are licensed to sin, would probably choose to just ignore it. They see it happen, it's there. You know, the real question is, who am I to judge? And the reality is that both of these approaches, this is key, both of these approaches leave the sinner in their sin. On the one hand, the sin is exposed, the sin is made a big deal of, the legalist makes himself feel really good, the sinner is isolated, and he's left there in his sin, figured out. But the licensed person, uh, they go beyond covering it. They not only cover it, but they don't want to be a part of it. That's eh, his life, live and not live. And the person is left in their sin. But the problem is that the sinner is harmed. He's been caught in this trap, and he's harmed, and he's being harmed. He needs to be restored. Speaking of a need for mending or healing, that's what the word means. The mending of nets or the healing of, of the body. This person who has sinned is a broken person. And in a sense, they're spiritually bleeding and sick. This person needs someone to help them. I can't help but think of the Good Samaritan who comes alongside and, and sees this person who's been left there by the legalists because they don't want to defile themselves with this person. And that person that, that, person that the Good Samaritan helps is, is broken and he's bleeding, and he's, he's there, and he can't get up. There's a need for someone to help them. And you know, in that story, the question, the story was given in response to the question of who is my neighbor? And, and, and as I think of this, and I think of that story, I, I remember in, in chapter 5, Paul speaks of loving your neighbor. That one word, serving one another, loving your neighbor. And Paul comes back to this illustration here of this person who's been harmed by sin and being harmed by sin, who needs that restoration, broken, bleeding. So, so then the question becomes, well, who's qualified to bring healing? to this person. I mean, if they're, if they're that broken and, and they're bleeding like that, well, well, whose responsibility is it? Who's qualified 
to help this person. And I go back to the Good Samaritan story, and it's, it's just a guy. It's just a guy who comes along. He doesn't say he's a doctor or he has any specialties. He just comes along. And, and he helps this person. And, and that's kind of what Paul's response is here. He says that, that there's a class of people. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. There's a class of people. The spiritual ones. The spiritual ones are the ones who are qualified to bring help and healing. To, to work with this person in this process of restoration, this sinner, to restore him. Well, who is this class of people? Who's, who's, who falls into this, this classification of the spiritual ones? Well, our, our mind immediately jumps to pastors, elders, deacons, the spiritually mature. I'm doing that a lot this time today with my quotation marks. These, these Christian superheroes is what we kind of see here most often. These people who have achieved some state of righteousness beyond the rest. But that's not how Paul uses this word. Paul's not speaking of Christian superheroes. He's not speaking of those who have reached some level of spirituality that God gives them, you know, some kind of merit badge that says you are qualified to help broken people. You are qualified to help sinners. When Paul uses that term spiritual, it, it really simply refers to those who are of the spirit. That, that's probably a very, not probably, it is a very literal rendering of what Paul says there. You who are of the Spirit, restore this person who's been caught by sin. And those people who are people of the Spirit, this is so good how Paul does that this year. Those people who are people of the Spirit, they're members of the New Covenant community. They're you. And they're me. The members of the new covenant community who are the people of love. The people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and through whom the love of Christ, the love of God is being displayed because of the transformation that's taking place inside of them. Not because they have a list to check off. Okay, sometime this week, I've got to find somebody who's been caught in sin and restore them. Okay, I, uh, if I do that, then, then I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do, and, and therefore I'm a good person, and I'm a spiritual person. Now, the people who are of the Spirit are people of love who see someone broken and bleeding and like the Good Samaritan, can't walk by them and leave them there. They bend down. They sit on the side of the road with this broken person. And they help. And notice how Paul 
defines the way the fruit of the Spirit is going to interact and be displayed, how this love is going to be seen. Because the restoration is done in gentleness. It's done in humility. This is such a massive thing for me to learn. I was not a gentle person by nature. It's just not how I was born. I don't come from a long line of gentle people. And it's one reason legalism, I think, subconsciously appealed to me. There's harshness in legalism. But Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, all those things and gentleness is in there. And now he comes back and says, you new covenant people, you people who are of the Spirit, you people in whom the fruit of the Spirit is being developed, you're being changed into the image of Jesus, come to this person who has been caught by sin, Come to them to help them be restored, to help them be healed, and come displaying the gentleness that the Holy Spirit is producing in you as a person of love. There's been no whiff of harshness. Gentleness is an identification with the sinner, both in their failure and their weakness. That's what he goes on to talk about here in this section. A, a person of love, what I'm calling a one-word person, love. This one, this one who lays in front of me, this person who I, I know has been caught in sin, this person who is broken and bleeding, this person has sinned. Yeah just like I do. I sin too. They lied. And I've lied too. They've slandered. And I've, I've done that too. This one needs a gentle helper. They need that just like I need a gentle help. A person of love realizes I am nothing. And as I stand with this broken and bleeding sinner, I am not greater than them, I am not stronger than them, and I am not more righteous than them. If that person is in Christ, they have the righteousness of Christ credited to their account. Now, now maybe their, their daily um, living out of that righteousness isn't that great. But they're standing with God. Their righteousness before God has not been diminished by their sin. And for a lot of people in churches, what I just said is like, what did you just say? Of course their standing with God has been diminished. Of course their their 
fellowship, God's attitude towards them has changed? No, because I stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus. I have not earned any merit with God through my righteousness. He does not love me on the basis of my righteousness. He loves me on the basis of Jesus's righteousness. And so I, as I stand there, or as I sit there with this broken, bleeding sinner, caught in sin, I understand that he is as accepted by the Father as I am accepted by the Father because of Jesus. If I understand that and I believe that, that's going to change my attitude towards a sinning brother. I'm not going to overlook the sin. But I'm going to understand that all I am is because of Jesus, the gentle shepherd, the kind physician. But Paul goes further than that. He says, not only should, should the spiritual ones, the ones who are of the spirit, seek to restore this person, but he goes on to say, I am to bear their burden. Now, I'm going to take a different view on this than some do. Uh, and, and I will say that um, there are good people on both sides of the issue. But when Paul speaks of bearing their burden in context, in context of what he's talking about at the end of chapter 5 and what he's talking about here in chapter 6, I don't believe this refers to the general difficulties of life. Although there are passages in Scripture that talk about us bearing each other's burdens in the sense of um, life's difficulties. But I don't think Paul is changing his subject matter here all of a sudden, moving from restoring a broken sinner or one who's caught in sin to the general burdens of life. In context, it seems to me that Paul is wanting us to understand that the restoration of one who has spiritually failed goes beyond the immediacy of the problem. In other words, it goes it goes further than just fixing them in the moment. If you think about the Good Samaritan again, that that's what happens. The Good Samaritan picks up this person and gets them to a hotel, a place of lodging where he's safe. He, he binds up his wounds. He gives him ointment. He tries to treat the wounds at the best as he can. And then he brings him to a place of safety and a place of lodging and tells the innkeeper that he will be responsible for their, their expenses, this person's expenses. I think that's the idea of bearing one another's burdens. To put it back here in chapter 6 and with the, with the, the sinner caught in sin, the person caught in sin, my responsibility to this hurting brother or sister is to walk with them in their journey to wholeness. I don't just come in and, and fix their wounds, although that's wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in a way that kind of minimizes it, and I don't mean to. But that the, the, my responsibility doesn't stop there. 
my responsibility continues as I walk with them in their journey to wholeness. I'm, I'm there with them, uh, or I'm in their life to point them to Jesus in their moments of guilt and doubt. Possibly, I would go so far as to say, even to share in the burden of the consequences of their sin, whatever those consequences might be. Getting caught in their sin might mean that they lose their job. And you have this person who needs restoration, but you have this person who has lost their job because of the consequences of their sin. If I was bearing their burdens, I, I would suggest that I might have a role to play or the larger church might have a role to play in the life of this one caught in sin who wants to move forward and be free from their sin, which I want to talk about in just a moment. It, I, I, let me put it this way. Let me give you this illustration. It seems that Paul is speaking of something longer term, similar to one who has broken their leg. I broke my leg in college. Most of you know that. You know, my leg, as I laid there on the ground with my leg going in the wrong direction, so to speak, someone had to come and diagnose that, that I was broken, literally. Uh, that there had to be a diagnosis of, there, of that. And then somebody, uh, a group of EMTs came and, and got me stabilized and got me onto an ambulance and got me to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, there was a team of doctors who reset that bone and they casted that bone. But you know, the journey wasn't done once the surgery was done and once the cast was on. The journey wasn't done in my healing, in my restoration. Uh, this didn't happen with me. If it had, I would probably be in a much better place today in relation to my leg and the joints that are in that leg. But months of physical therapy normally follow that. You know, I, I didn't have physical therapy, but I had to learn to walk again. After a year and a half on a cane, I actually had to learn how to walk again. And, you know, th that person who has physically been broken like that, may not be able to work for a while. And there may be financial needs as that person is unable to walk. And while that illustration or that analogy has weaknesses, I think it works. I think it goes with what Paul is talking about here. That I come to this person broken, bleeding, as a believer caught in sin, who needs to be restored, who needs, who needs healing. And as, as a hand of Jesus, if you want to use that phrase, although it's been overused and misused, but as, as the hands of Jesus, I come alongside them. And, and I am actively involved in the process of the immediate problem and dealing with the immediate fallout of the sin. And then I become involved in moving forward in their life, 
and discipling them maybe and getting them the help that they need that might be beyond my skill levels and then actually sacrificing of my own possessions and time to help with some of the consequences that are there so they don't become discouraged. What would it be like in our churches if that's what we did with people when they fail? Like it's an important question. And, and what would our churches be like if it wasn't just one person that was involved with this person, but multiple people came alongside of this person and were involved in their journey of restoration? It might be that we would have less people who have very negative feelings about the church. But Paul goes forward even more. After all of his instruction, Paul almost seems to contradict himself in verse 5, where he says that each has to bear his own load. Well, that's great. Bear one of those burdens, but you bear your own load. So is Paul here advocating for a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps mentality? I don't think so. Because the reality is that the that the person who's broken and bleeding, just like the man in the story of the Good Samaritan, couldn't pull himself up by his bootstraps. Instead, I would suggest that Paul here is speaking of each person's individual responsibility when they fail, and their responsibility and participation in their journey to restoration. To say it another way, I think each of us must take responsibility when we are caught in sin, acknowledge that sin, want to repent of that sin, and each of us have a responsibility in pursuing personal wholeness after we sin. You know, I'm reminded of a phrase that someone once said, and I found it to be very true in life. If you try to help those who don't want your help, you'll end up needing help yourself. Again, I found it to be very true. But applied to this situation, let's, let's go back to the analogy of the broken leg. I've broken my leg. And, the, and the, the people who come and diagnose it, the EMTs who come and they're there to help me, and I shove them away and say, leave me alone. I, I like it this way. <laughs> yeah, I broke my leg. No, I can't stand up. Yes, it hurts a lot, but don't you dare touch me. I, I refuse help for mending. I refuse to pursue healing. But I expect everyone else to alleviate the pain of the consequences. I can't expect to heal. And I'll blame other people because now I have gangrene in my leg and it's rotting off, but it's everybody else's fault. I, you can't do anything for that kind of person. And so, so I, I believe that what Paul's trying to communicate here, there are two sides of the situation. Yes, we are to be people who gently and humbly come alongside the broken and bleeding to help them. But on the other side of the coin, 
we as people who have been caught in sin have to bear our own burden and be willing to accept consequences and be willing to acknowledge our sin and be willing to say, I need help. I need help. Because then you have a person who wants to heal and wants to move forward in the right direction and you have a person who comes alongside of them and says, I want to walk with you. And they gently help them move forward. And the reality is, probably somewhere along the line, that person who came along gently and humbly to help the broken person heal, this person over here is going to find themselves broken one day. And there's this person right there with them and says, hey, let me do for you what you did for me. And they walk together through life as believers in community, helping one another. The bottom line is that we are to be people who live by one word. We are to be one word people, and that word is love. And this way of life is the third way of life. It's not legalism. It's not license. These are extremes, and these are unbiblical. The third way of life is the way of the Spirit. It's the way of Jesus. But this third way of life in the New Covenant community is messy. It's exhausting, and it requires selflessness. But it is the way of love. It is the way of the Spirit, and it is the law of Jesus. Do you remember the law of Jesus? In, in John chapter 13, Jesus said, I give you a new command. It's not really a new command. But I give you a new command to love one another even as I have loved you. That is the law of Christ. That is the law of Jesus that is the third way. That is what it means to be people of love. It, that is what it means to be one word people. And by God's grace, may that be who we are in reality. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for this letter. I thank you for what Paul says to us. He speaks in ways that are very close to our homes and to our churches, very close to who we are as people. God, protect us from the blindness of legalism and the blindness of license. Help us to be people who love your son, who want to be like your son, people who are one word people, people who are people of love. Father, help us to keep in step with the Spirit. In your Son's name, amen. Walk in grace.